Hello and welcome to Beer and Money, a financial fireside chat for tech professionals. We work to simplify your finances so that you can enjoy your life. Now here are your hosts, Ryan Burkwell and Alex Collins. Everybody. Welcome back to Beer and Money. Today's episode is going to be an interview with a local mortgage lender and advisor um, that has an area of expertise around helping his clients with refinancing of homes, um, purchasing a home and getting the mortgage. If you're a real estate investor, looking at that perspective. So we're going to do a holistic viewpoint of what you should be considering when we're looking at that type of loan and that type of asset class. And so my prestige guest that I've got on today's podcast, his name is Nick Wilson. He works for Legacy Group. And so, Nick, happy to have you on the podcast. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, why don't we start off by, you know, Tell everyone a little bit about your background. Like, why in the world did you choose to help people with their mortgage aspects? Well, like like many of us who who find ourselves in careers that we probably never would have envisioned as uh, our younger selves. That's similar with me. Where you know, growing up, I was never the math guy or the the finance guy or someone who was interested in in, in that sort of aspect of of life. Um, and then as I got into my 20s, I had a, a cousin who was in the mortgage business for a number of years, and he kept trying to recruit me to join the business for years and years, and I kept saying, no, that sounds like it's not really for me, uh, thanks anyways, and then he just kept uh, kept pestering me, saying, no, I really think you should do this, and then so finally, in the summer of 2007, I said, okay, let's go, I'll, I'll, I'll come work with you, and I want to learn the business, and I'll come work in the business, and you know, anybody that's familiar with uh, markets and what went on in 2007, you probably know that that was probably the worst time that anybody could ever get in the business um, was, was the summer of 2007 because that was kind of the, the kickoff of the huge market crash that, you know, we had a depressed real estate market for many years after that. And things were really tough for people in the mortgage and real estate business. Great timing there, Nick. Thank you. It was also the, the best of times because, you know, if you can survive in that kind of market, then you can you can thrive in any market. So I, I, I learned the hard way, but I think I learned the right way. Yeah, that's that's a solid point. Actually, I haven't um, I haven't even thought about that. That aspect is if you can make it at the worst time to actually enter the industry, you're probably going to do pretty good. Uh, I guess I just like to do things the hard way. Yeah. Well, isn't there some. There's some slogan or something out there, right? If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger or something. Yeah, I think it might be true, but I'm, I'm, maybe I'm limping a little bit now from from the years of abuse. But Fair no, it, it, it's been a, a fun adventure. Awesome. So I'll ask you a question just from from my standpoint around, you know, you've got these uh, mortgage advisors or lenders that maybe work for a bank, right? Bank of America or mm-hmm. BCU. Um, and then you have like mortgage institutions, I'll call them that way, where maybe it's mm-hmm. an, an evergreen or a specific lender. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's the difference between the different 
style or different approaches, I guess, as how you're associated with the mortgage? Absolutely. So there's when you're talking about someone, uh, when, you're, when you're going out to get a, a home loan, a mortgage loan, uh, there's kind of three different business models that help consumers get mortgage loans. So there's your banks, like you mentioned, like your Wells Fargo, your Chase, retail banks that do checking of savings, deposits, auto loans, all that good stuff. And you can walk into a branch and, and talk to them. Um, so that's one division. Then you've got uh, this other business model, which is a mortgage bank. And then that would be, there's a lot of local lenders um, and nationwide lenders that are mortgage banks. And what they do is they process, underwrite, and fund the mortgage loans with their own resources and money. And then they package those loans after closing and sell them on the secondary market. Um, and then that's how they really make their money in most cases is by uh, selling those loans in bulk on the secondary market uh, for a profit. In some cases, the, those companies will also retain the loans and, and service the loans because there is uh, profit in servicing rights. So a lot of them will have a, a portfolio of loans they service themselves. And then the, the third type of uh, business model in the mortgage world is mortgage brokers. And, and that's actually what I am now where um, what they do is the um, a broker like myself, I work for a company that we don't actually process and underwrite the loans with our own staff and resources. What we do is we kind of cut out some of the excess fat and have relationships with wholesale lenders across the nation. And, and wholesale lenders are lending companies that they have the staff and the resources and the money to process, underwrite and approve mortgage loans, um, but they don't have any sort of retail facing channels. So they're not paying for the bricks and the mortar and the advertising and all of that that goes into you know attracting clients to do business with you so they just rely on uh, mortgage brokers across the nation to send them in loans now what that does is it allows them to be a lot more competitive from a rate pricing standpoint um, so usually wholesale lenders brokers are going to have the lowest possible interest rate available for consumers and, and save them a lot of money on interest um, banks like a uh, chase or a bank of america or whoever they're usually going to have the, the second lowest rates uh, available to consumers. And then just based on where the, the market is in our current year, mortgage banks uh, that do it all themselves and then sell, sell the loans on the secondary market, they actually usually have the highest interest rates now because they need to have larger margins to, to fund their operations. So that's kind of the, the big overview on the three different types of uh, business models and the differences between them. Um, now, at the company I'm at now, Legacy Group, it's probably the most unique business model I've seen for a mortgage company because we're truly not a, a mortgage company in the traditional sense. We're a real estate investment and private lending company that also has a, a mortgage brokering channel. So what that means is that the, the company I work for doesn't need to close a single residential mortgage loan to keep the lights on and pay the bills. Um, it's just a value add for our investors and for our clients. So it allows us to set our margins really, really low. And it means that, you know, almost all the time I'm able to offer my clients the lowest possible rate available. Gotcha. So just so that I recap that just a bit, um, mm -hmm. in the way that you're currently set up with Legacy Group, you're a broker, as you put it, where you're able to shop mm -hmm. for the, the, the right loan that fits the clients and you're not, you're not handcuffed, if you will, with only being allowed to offer a specific product at a specific interest rate. Is that a fair statement? Exactly. So if you if you go into a bank or a, a mortgage lending company um, that just does loans and, and has their own staff doing it all, 
you're you're going to be stuck within their rate sheet and within their available loan programs. Now, banks are going to usually be the most restrictive as far as loan programs and guidelines, but they'll have slightly better rates. And then the mortgage banks are going to have more flexibility on program guidelines, but then they're typically going to have much higher interest rates than banks or brokers. Gotcha. So when you mentioned program guidelines, um, is that that you're not talking about the style of loan, like FA, like an FHA loan or VA loan or the conventional like 30-year fixed type of loan. You're talking about programs specific to like uh, the the industry. Oh no, uh, when I talk about program guidelines, it would be specific to things like an FHA loan. So the, FHA has various loan programs. You know, they have a 30-year fix, they have adjustable rates, um, they have different programs that they offer for consumers. And each of those programs are going to have a, a certain set of guidelines. Now, you know, FHA sets their guidelines and they have a handbook full of rules, but then banks and mortgage companies will often add their own rules on top of the base rules and they call those guideline overlays. So when you're dealing with a, a bank, like a retail bank, say a, a Chase or somebody, they're going to have their own risk-based guidelines that they apply on top of the, the base guidelines, just because as a bank, they're saying, um, you know, they may not like something about FHA's guidelines that they feel are a little too lenient. So they'll set their own guidelines on top of those guidelines just to be a little bit more restrictive to minimize their risk a little more. So rules on top of rules. Got to love it. Rules on top of rules and red tape on top of red tape. Welcome to the mortgage industry. <laughs> so you brought up an FHA loan. Can, can you, I mean, I know when I first bought my first house, there are so many different style of loans, FHA loan, VA loan. Uh, you know, can you go through maybe just kind of high level around what are the different style of loans? Let's just start there, I guess. Yeah. So the, there's kind of a, a, a common group of loans that most consumers use to purchase homes, whether they're first time buyers or repeat buyers. And, and that's kind of the FHA and conventional loan programs are probably the funding the majority of the loans that close in in the United States. And so FHA is a, a government-backed loan where they set program guidelines that are more lenient in, in terms of credit scores, debt ratios, and down payment requirements. So it, it basically casts a wider net and allows more people to have access to, to credit and to be able to buy a home. And then conventional loans also have some government backing behind them um, but they're, they're stricter guidelines. And so that when you're talking about a conventional loan, a consumer's credit scores and their down payment capacity is going to, to influence on a greater level whether they're going to get approved and how much they can get approved for. Um, and so the, those are kind of the, the main differences where FHA is going to be a little bit more lenient, but maybe a little bit more expensive in terms of private mortgage insurance costs and some other things than a conventional loan. But then there, more people are going to qualify for it, so it's going to give access to more consumers. So there's an access point, if you will, for that. But you, you're, I mean, from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, the access point uh, is easier on the FHA loan side, except it, it will probably cost you more because of that thing, as you just said, the PMI, the private mortgage insurance. Accurate statement or no? Accurate, yeah. And just to kind of rewind on that, um, so lenders are going to always require private mortgage insurance whenever a consumer is putting less than 20% down buying a home or if they have a less than 20% equity when they're refinancing a home. And so FHA, they have standard private mortgage insurance costs across the board 
regardless of your credit score. So an applicant with an 800 credit score would be paying the same PMI cost as someone with a, a 600 credit score. Non-conventional, the applicant with an 800 credit score is going to have significantly lower PMI costs than an applicant with a 600 credit score. So there's, there's more dynamic pricing involved with the PMI on a conventional program than there is FHA. So, you know, if, if you have a higher credit score, typically a conventional loan would be more affordable than an FHA loan. Gotcha. And then the, the, I mentioned the, the VA loan, that's Veterans Association loan. So you have to be a veteran of the armed forces, correct? Correct. Yeah, you have to have um, a certificate of eligibility from your service, and you can be active duty or retired uh, to qualify as long as you have those VA benefits. And the VA program is is just a tremendous loan program that's a benefit for our veterans and service members. It allows people to buy with 0% down and not have to pay any PMI monthly. Um, they do, in some cases, have what's called a funding fee, which is sort of similar to PMI that gets charged up front and financed into the loan or, or consumers can pay it off cash. Um, and there are some service members that are exempt from that fee too. Like if you're discharged due to a service-related disability, you probably don't have to pay that funding fee. But it, it allows our veterans to, to get into a home with no money down and not have to pay PMI costs, which keeps their, their overall monthly payment lower and more affordable. Gotcha. So there's not necessarily a better loan, like you couldn't say that this loan is better than that loan because it depends on your situation and what else is going on for you, I guess, from a financial capacity, from a credit capacity, from a, I mean, maybe an experience capacity. Like when you just get out of college, you may not have a bunch of experience around the credit, so you might only have one option. That, that's absolutely right. Like there, I wouldn't say there's the, the good and the bad or the right and the wrong type of loan program. It's not one size fits all. So it really is unique to each individual. Um, in some cases, you know, if you're a first timer right out of college, we may not be able to get an approval for a conventional loan, um, but we are able to get an approval for an FHA loan. So in that sort of scenario, you know, FHA isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's allowing someone access to credit and, and the ability to purchase a home when they're just starting out. So talk to us a little bit about the, you know, we're talking about the loans. What does it take to get pre-approved? Like what is it the underwriters are looking for when they go to approve someone or I guess maybe decline them? Well, when you're getting pre-approved, their lenders are looking at a variety of factors, but mainly they're looking at uh, credit. So what are, what's your credit scores? What's your credit utilization? What's your history of making payments on time? Um, they're also looking at your capacity, meaning, you know, how much money do you make? Uh, how much money do you have in the bank? Uh, how much money do you have to put down? And then they're looking at that in relation, you're, they're looking at your income in relation to your current debt obligations. And they, they do a, a calculation called a debt to income ratio calculation, which I think a lot of consumers may have heard of. But that's just basically what are all your minimum monthly debt payments in relation to your gross monthly income. And similar to say like insurance companies set insurance rates based on their risk-based uh, analysis of, of stats and things like that, lenders are setting debt to income ratio guidelines based on loan performance analysis over the years. So, you know, some lenders might allow you to, or some loan programs might allow you to qualify with 
a 45% debt ratio. Some may allow you to qualify as high as 56% debt ratio. And then there's some programs that are more restrictive that might cap it at 43% or lower. So, you know, there's, there's a variety of factors to look into, but it's mainly your income. What's your credit? What's your debt load? Um, what's your ability to pay? And then all of that information is input on the application and run through underwriting software. And, and really nowadays in the United States, loan decisions are made by software for the most part. So lenders, when you're getting pre-approved, they're going to run your application through this underwriting software. And then that software is going to provide feedback to the lender that says, um, you know, they're approved or they're not approved. And then it'll also have some additional info on the why behind that decision. And it'll also instruct the lenders on what documents need to be included in the file. And then for the most part, human underwriters now are just reviewing those computer findings and just validating that all of the documentation is in the file that the software is calling out. So it's pretty much artificial intelligence at this point that's, just, that's determining whether someone's approved or not approved. Um, the only exceptions to that would be like jumbo financing, which is in our area loan amounts above 726000 um, and portfolio loans, which are loans that a, a bank issues with their own money and, and services on their own books that they don't intend to, to sell to Wall Street. So if I am looking to buy my first house, like you just said a lot there. <laughs> so Right. Yeah, there's, let's, there's a lot because there's a lot in the why. So let's let's give uh, let's give the listeners a little bit of what they should aim for, if you will. So let's start with credit. What is I don't know if there is there a minimum credit score you need uh, to be approved and and how does that change over time? In general, 620 is the minimum credit score that applicants um, can have to qualify. There's a few programs that allow the, the scores to be a little bit lower than that. But ideally, of course, you would want your scores to be higher because the higher your credit score, the more programs you're going to qualify for and you'll get a better deal on your interest rate if you have a higher credit score than a lower score. But 620 is kind of the, the base level bare minimum that applicants can qualify at. Gotcha. And so if I'm at 620, I'm assuming the, if, if you come in and you're at a 620 credit score, that also affects mm -hmm. the, the interest rate that you'll get on the loan. Like if you had a higher credit score, you could get a lower interest rate, correct? Exactly. Yeah. The what, what lenders do is they, they apply risk-based adjustments to their rate sheets, that, and that's what determines what interest rate you as a consumer would receive. So if you have a 620 credit score, there's going to be some sort of risk-based adjustment to the pricing that would you know result in a, in a higher interest rate for a low credit score person. So do you have do you have any tips for people to increase their credit score? Yeah, there's there's a bunch of little tips, but the main ones are, you know, the, the obvious one is pay your bills on time. Late payments can really drag a score down. Um, the second thing is to try to try to maintain credit card balances that do not exceed 25% of the account limit. So, for example, if you have a thousand dollar account limit on a credit card, try not to carry a balance from month to month more than $250. Once you get above that 25% of the account limit, it starts to drag down on credit scores. Um, another thing that can hold people's scores back is just lack of credit and credit history. So it's really common when people are starting out where maybe they just have one or two student loans and no credit cards and, and they're just trying to do the right thing by being responsible and not open credit cards and run up debt and things like that. 
Well, that can actually have the, the opposite effect where they don't have any credit history utilization. And then so their scores are reporting lower because there's no history to, to base the scoring off of. So, you know, I would recommend to have at least one credit card account that you, you know, you keep at that 25% or lower balance and use it for everyday items and, and pay your bills every month, um, but don't run up large balances. And if you do that over time, it should help uh, boost your scores higher and higher. Um, another thing that I see a lot is applicants will have collections from an old issue, whether it's a medical bill or just some bill that got reported to collections from years ago that's just kind of lingering out there. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about how collections will just kind of disappear magically, but it's rare that they do because most collection agencies will re-report the collection within the time window and, and it stays following you. So really it's one of those things where you just kind of got to bite the bullet and pay off the collection. Um, now when you do pay off collection accounts, it will temporarily lower your scores, but within about six to nine months of paying off a collection, the scores will recover and increase from a prior level. So those are kind of the, the main things I would recommend people do, but paying bills on time, not carrying too much of a debt load. Um, and another thing is not just applying for tons of debt. If you apply for uh, 20 credit cards in a month, you're going to tank your scores. Um, it, 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 the scoring algorithms interpret that as a consumer is going out and applying for a bunch of debt and being denied by a bunch of places, and it drags your scores down. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, when you're actually, let's just say you got pre-approved for the loan, mm -hmm. before you actually get the loan and close on the house, like you don't want to go out and, say, buy a brand new car. Right. There's kind of our classic do's and don'ts of when you're pre-approved and you're out home shopping. Um, you, know, you don't want to go run up excess debt and credit before you bought your home. So it's not the right time to buy the fur coat or the boat or anything like that. Um, but sometimes life happens. You know, I, I've had these scenarios where I'm helping someone and buy their first home or second home, whatever it is, and their car dies and they have to go buy a new car. I mean, that's just, you have to get to work kind of thing. So in those situations, you know, if you do, if you're trying to buy a home, you do need to go open up some, some debt for whatever reason. It's best to consult your your loan officer and have them just run the numbers that let you know how it'll affect their the buying power. Yeah. Um, so things can happen, but in general, yeah, don't go open up new debt when you're trying to buy a home. Wait until after you close on the home to open any new debts. Yeah, I brought it up because I remember when uh, my wife and I bought our first um, house, we were also mm -hmm. looking to buy a car at the exact same time. And so we started mm -hmm. to look for the car and I ha I don't even know how this occurred, but like we're literally at the um, the dealership, and the the my the mortgage person that we were working with for our first house happened to call me, and I happened to mention that I'm at the dealership about to buy a car, and he had to go and he, he took care of me, he went back and ran the numbers just to make sure. To your point, my debt to income did all of a sudden drastically change. Well, that's good that he was, it was like perfect timing for you then. So you were oh, yeah. still able to get the car in the house and everything. Yeah, it worked out, but I mean, it could have been really bad. And had he not called, it, I, I, it's just, it didn't cross my mind, even though it makes sense looking back on it. You know, when you're, your first home and everything else, there's, you just don't think like that. So it's that, that memory yeah, is I mean, there's, there's a, that. So it's pretty common and it's as a, a home buyer there's a million things that you're worried about and planning for and, and the least of which is you know what is my debt to income ratio you're more worried about 
packing and finding a house and, and all the other normal things in life. So exactly. um, it, it can definitely turn out the wrong way. I've had that, you know, the opposite where someone's like, Oh, by the way, I just bought a new Tesla and now they don't qualify. So um, Whoops. You know, it, it, it definitely hold off until you buy the house to get the new car. If you can. Yes. So, you know, speaking of, debt to income or the income side of things, you know, we live in Seattle where there are tech companies out there mm -hmm. that give their employees, like part of their employees income is essentially a stock, like a restricted stock unit where it, it cashes out at the end of the year and, um, or gets vested at Absolutely. the end of the year, I should say, vested, not cashed out. And right. how the stock's doing obviously could be a, a bigger income year. So they've got the salary plus the stock. How do uh, how do you take that into account? Are you only looking at salary? How does that how does that work? Well, you're right. That's a real common compensation structure with a lot of our technology companies locally. And um, the short answer is the applicants are allowed to use RSUs as qualifying income. There's always kind of some some asterisks and stipulations involved, but in general, we need to show that you had a history of receiving it from your employer. And your employer, you know, would need to confirm to us that it's likely to continue, that it's going to continue to be part of your compensation package. And then from there, like how much of it we can use and how we quantify that for income. It's, it's typically done based on an average of how many shares you receive per year and then what the, the current stock price is as of the, the time we're doing the loan for you. So, you know, if someone gets five shares a year from their employer, um, we're going to give you credit for five shares a year of income at the current stock price. Does that change at all if it's a refinance rather than a home purchase? Uh, no, it doesn't change. So it's just it would all go into our normal calculation of your qualifying income. Um, so that's, that's just a normal part of our underwriting analysis where we would just derive whatever amount we can for an applicant's income. Gotcha. So, okay, so here I'll throw a different type of scenario at you. So what if it, this is okay. a home to live in, as in mm -hmm. I'm not buying a home for my family, I'm buying a home for an investment property, so I'm going to go rent it out. Mm. How does that change the underwriter's uh, viewpoint, and what should I, um, the one that's purchasing the investment property, what should I be considering? I know that's probably like a, <laughs> that's an open-ended question that could go up far. Let's start with what's the underwriters going to look at if I'm buying an investment property? So when you're buying an investment property, the, the loan guidelines are going to be a little bit more restrictive in that you're going to be required to put more money down. Um, and the, uh, we, we look at the, the capacity based on what the rental income is too. So if you're going to go buy an investment property, then, you know, you're going to have to put at least 15% down versus, you know, if you're buying a home to live in, you can buy with zero to 3% down in some cases. So your, your down payment requirements increase substantially. Um, additionally, when you're buying an investment property, lenders want to see that you have what we call payment reserves. So, we're going to look at your, your assets and make sure that you have enough money for your down payment. But then on top of that, we want to make sure that you have enough capacity for reserve so that if your home goes vacant for a little while and you don't have a tenant in there renting, that you have enough cash to continue paying the mortgage for a certain period of time. 
in general, lenders want to see that you have six months of payment reserves in addition to any sort of required down payment. Does that change at all if from a cash flow perspective, and I guess this would be a debt to income ratio, um, does that change? If I don't have six months of reserve, as you're talking about, but from an income perspective, I have I can clearly afford both homes. Does that change the mm -hmm. underwriter's viewpoint on that or do, do they require six months of reserve? It, you know, in that sort of scenario, most of the time the applicant's going to be denied. They're not going to be approved for the loan because they don't meet the reserves requirements, even though they can afford the monthly payment. Um, that would be another one where we might have to find some sort of niche loan program, a portfolio program that, that fits for that client. Um, but in general, the, the, an investment property is going to require reserves um, if, you're, if you're buying a rental or refinancing a rental property. Uh, the, only, the only time that wouldn't apply is if you're doing more of a speculative investment transaction, like you're buying a house to fix it up and flip it immediately. You don't plan to hold it as a rental property. That sort of uh, purchase scenario or, or transaction is more based on the performance of the project itself rather than your specific capacity. Okay, so I'm going to flip that question on you now just to make sure that everyone heard. Well, this it's just a flip scenario, I guess. So let's just say mm -hmm. I'm not making enough money that I that I really couldn't afford both homes, but I. Mm -hmm. But, and I've got good debt-to-income ratio, if you will. I guess it would still have to be still in that, that ratio that you're looking for. But I've got the six mm -hmm. months reserves. Can I still get approved? Well, the, the fun thing about investment properties is if you do have cash, if you, you have enough of the down payment and the reserves requirements, when you go to buy an investment property, we're allowed to use the projected rental income to help you qualify. So... Um, let's say you're going to go buy a, a little place that can rent for $1,000 a month. We can actually uh, give you credit for 75% of those rents. Even if you don't have a tenant in place already or a signed lease agreement, we can just go off of the what the appraiser projects that the home can rent for and give you credit for 75% of that for qualifying. So when you're buying an investment property, we can actually almost create additional income that you can use to qualify based on the house that you're buying. Um, based on the projected income for it. Gotcha. So you get the credit. Okay, very cool. So the six-month cash reserve, does that have to be uh, – I mean, could that be my 401K? It, it often can. Um, retirement, can't, re retirement accounts often meet the reserve requirements. Um, same with uh, portfolio accounts like stocks and bonds. Uh, the lender's not going to require you to liquidate your retirement or liquidate any sort of stock that you own to meet the reserves. They're just going to ask to see your, your statement to show that the money's in the account. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So let me ask you this. You know, you, you are working with your clients. What are the three most common questions you're getting from your clients? The Well, the most common thing I hear a lot is um, – how do you buy a home and how do you get pre-approved? Okay. So that's, that's probably the number one thing that I hear. Um, the next, next common thing I get is, you know, what credit score do I need, which is something, you know, you and I just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, another, another common question, let's see here, would probably be, um, is there a way to like 
finance repairs into the home that I'm buying. So like a lot of people want to go buy a fixer and, and finance in some rehab work into the deal. And so I get that question a lot because um, like the HGTV program is really popular where people flip houses or fix them up, you know? So people watch those programs and kind of get excited about doing things like that and ask me about it. So those are probably kind of the, the three kind of common ones I get a lot. So let, let's go into the, the last one there, because I'm sure that's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's not just about flipping houses. It's buying the fixer upper where you know you want to obviously fix it up. Or maybe it's just knowing Absolutely. that you want. I'm assuming you're talking about some sort of home equity line of credit attached into the or is it just a straight loan that you actually they give you some cash out of that to um, fund the repairs? Uh, it's, it's the second part of what you said. It's, there are what's called rehab loan programs out there that allow people to finance in part of the improvements, like a rehab budget into the, the sales price or into the loan amount if you're doing a refinance, um, where you can actually build in a, a rehab budget into the financing that, let me rewind for a second to make it a little bit more easier to understand. Like, let's say, Ryan, that you wanted to go buy a house and that house is either in rough shape or maybe it's just livable but completely outdated and you want to put in new flooring and a new kitchen and make it look the way that you want it to be so that you can live in it you could actually go buy the house and build in a rehab budget into the sales price so that you could close on the house in its current condition and then as soon as you take ownership then you can have your contractor get to work on that rehab project and they'll be paid out of the rehab budget that's built into your loan um, now, to kind of keep it simple so that it's easier to understand, when you're doing a rehab loan, it differs from when you buy a normal house, because when you buy a normal house, you're just putting your down payment on whatever the sales price is. But if you're doing a rehab loan, your down payment is based on the cost of acquisition, which we determine based on the sales price, plus your rehab budget. So, you know, if you're house costs 100 and your rehab budget is, a, is 100, then your down payment's based on 200 instead of just the 100 sales price. Does that make sense? Yes, I gotcha. That, okay. I've uh, often personally wondered about that, so that cleared some things up for me. Hopefully that cleared up some things for the listeners as well. Um, you know, something that just hit me that I, I meant to ask you earlier on around refinancing what is so if I if I own a home and I've had it for a certain amount of time and I want to refinance either uh, the refinance maybe to to upgrade my home like we maybe we were just talking about or maybe I've got this these extra credit card debt or student loan debt or, or any other debt that's out there that I want to pull into my mortgage what mm -hmm. is what does that look like? What what are the underwriters looking for in terms of you know the value of the home versus the debt I'm trying to bring in? So the the type of transaction you're discussing is what we call a, a cash out refinance. And for the majority of loan programs, the the banks are going to require that your new loan amount is no greater than 80% of whatever the current appraised value is. So they're going to want to see that you still have 20% equity left over after pulling cash out. And that's just to you know protect themselves, but also to protect consumers from themselves, so that they're not stripping all of their equity, um, you know, and then putting themselves in a bad position. So that's a, a cash out refinance. Now, the lenders are going to look at all the same stuff we talked about before, like credit scores and debt to income ratio. 
Um, but the key driver on a cash out refinance is what's the appraised value because that determines the maximum loan amount we, we can structure. And then from there, like you had mentioned, there's a variety of reasons someone might do that type of loan. It could be they want to pull some cash out to do some home improvement and they don't want to do a rehab loan because a rehab loan would require you to do the licensed contractor and have the bank approve the contractor. Whereas if you just pull the cash out through a refinance, you can do the work yourself. So if you're someone who's handy around the house, you can save yourself money by doing the work yourself. Um, or you can just kind of go at your own pace and, and do it as you go versus having a more of a tight timeline um, when you're in a rehab loan. Um, now, if you're, you're paying off credit cards through your loan, that's something where we would look at the numbers to, to make sure it makes sense because, you know, you would want to see some sort of net savings from doing so to free up more cash flow for your family. Um, but that's a real common thing we see where people have a lot of equity in their home, but maybe they've got some credit card debt or student loan debt or whatever it is, and we can put them in a better overall cash flow position by refinancing and paying off some of the debt with the home equity. Perfect. So let's let's transition a little bit here to, you know, I, I know several months ago, this might have been five or six months ago, and maybe it's still going on now, there was a lot of, um, you know, people had home equity line of credit and the interest rates started to go up. So they were all of a sudden refinancing those HELOCs, as they call them, became hot, if you will, in the market. Is there anything going on right now that is uh, unique to the time that we're in that people should be considering? Well, that, that first one you mentioned is still really popular. I have a lot of people exploring options like that. And for a couple of reasons, one, the rate on HELOCs have gone up because it's usually tied to the different indices that have all gone up over the last few years. Um, but also because of the new tax laws that now home equity lines of credit are no longer tax deductible. The interest used to be tax deductible on home equity line of credit if it was tied to your primary residence. Well, the new tax laws changed that. So... Um, a lot of people, you know, are moving their lines of credit into a first mortgage position, just consolidating it all so they can still have the, they can deduct the interest on their full mortgage. Um, so that's, that's really popular right now. Refinances overall are really hot right now because um, interest rates have gone back down into kind of historical low territory over the last few months. So a lot of people are taking advantage of the low rates. Um, that's also... Um, getting a lot of people out there to go buy houses right now because all of a sudden the cost of buying a house is significantly lower uh, today than it was six months ago just because of the drop in interest rates or, you know, in some cases over 1% lower. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised to see a couple uh, the interest rates the other day I was looking at where they were in the threes again, like upper threes for uh, a loan, which – that, yeah. that hadn't been seen for what, at least a year or two? Like it hadn't gotten back that low for a little bit here. So yeah, it had been really since I hadn't seen it since before the, uh, the presidential election in 2016. After, after that election, the rates really went up after the election. Now they're, they've come back around. So yep. And like a lot of what we talk about on the show, right? It's, it's about your cash flow. It's about the income and maximizing that. And looking at the entire picture around okay, where your debts are and how you're paying them in the interest rate, how do we attack that strategically rather than looking at it from a siloed decision? So looking at everything we've been discussing today in regards to interest rates, paying down debts, um, it, it's important to look at everything together. So 
Nick, I, I can't thank Absolutely. you enough for being, being on the show today. I hope, I hope the listeners have at least gotten one new piece of, uh, advice, if you will, or action item that they can take back to their own personal finances. You know, before we wrap up here, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how can you be reached? Oh, well, people can get to my site at teamwilsonhomeloans.com. Um, they're also, anybody's welcome to call or text me anytime. I'm, I'm easy to reach at the public number. It's 425-220-6977. And interested uh, applicants are welcome to call or text with questions or scenarios that, that they're interested in exploring. Awesome. Well, Nick, thanks again for being on the show. And to everyone else, cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax legal or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or qualified financial partners and opinions stated on their own. Guardian and subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax legal or accounting advice. Consult your tax legal or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Ryan and Alex are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. OSJ 3585 Naples Street, under 140 Ventura, California, 909399100. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, and FEMA, SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Quantified Financial Partners is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Number 2019-831222, expiration 07-2021.